Welcome back to the Lighthouse Project podcast, a Children of Scientology production and a completely collaborative effort to chat about all the issues affecting the youngest members of Scientology who didn't choose it for themselves. In this podcast, we are going to share our stories and information, some details of which may be upsetting or disturbing for listeners, specifically content involving sexual assault, rape, child sexual abuse, and psychological and physical abuse of children. We encourage anyone who has been affected by these types of experiences who wish to talk to someone about it to reach out to a trauma-informed organization in their area. Today, we're joined by my friend and second-generation survivor, Danielle. Super thrilled to have her co-hosting with us today and hopefully in future episodes and bring her voice to the textual conversations we're having about the trial and all things second generation and growing up in Scientology. Can you tell us a little bit about your Scientology experience, your childhood experience in Scientology? Sure. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. My mother joined Scientology after divorcing my dad. It was around 1974. He walked into the Worcester, Massachusetts mission at some point, and everything went downhill from there. She joined staff, and I was around the mission quite a bit as a kid, helping stuff envelopes and grading personality tests and all that sort of thing. And uh, within a few years, she joined the Sea Org and moved up to New York City. So at the time, that was called Polo East US. Flag leave, something like that is the acronym, a management Eastern United States office. And then I'll skip a few steps, but we ended up in Los Angeles where she was still in the C organization. At that point, I was about 12 and uh, recruited to go ahead and sign a contract and become a C org member myself. So I was at AOLA, Advanced Org Los Angeles, as a staff member. There's a few years in there where I wasn't in Los Angeles and I wasn't in the Sea Org, but then I came back. I had children, came back, joined the Sea Org again, brought my kids with me, and ultimately left for good around 2000. Of course, a lot more to it, but it was a roller coaster back and forth of not really believing, but then also in the outside world, not knowing how to be and not knowing how to function without the rules because that was the thing was like every time I would come back around an org, I knew what the rules were and I felt comfortable. So it was just a pendulum swing of, I don't want to be here and this place was crazy, but when I go out into the outside world, I don't know how to be or I don't know how things work. So I would go back. And then ultimately around 2000, there was just so many little things that happened, but mostly it was, the mistreatment of my own children, and I had to go. And not just go out of the Sea Org, but not be a public Scientologist or be involved with it in any way. So I tried to leave in the most spectacular way that they would declare me as a present person and never want me back because I also want to protect myself from changing my mind again. That's a really good point, Danny, that you said you wanted to protect yourself from joining again. I think that's such... Right. A very important point to note. Yeah, I actually gave thought to how can I actually do this so that there is no chance of ever being back into it again. Because mm. recidivism with second gens, third gens is so common. Because just like you said, 
you're in and you don't want to be there, but you get out and you're an alien in this strange universe that you've been raised to have all these stigmas around and lack of trust. And so you feel like an outsider, no matter where you are, really. But at least over here, this is the cage that you know. And so it's predictable. Yeah. And it's just awful. It's, I guess, like other abusive relationships. But I just think because we had no tools, resources, education, we were able to adapt and get by and blend in. But you don't ever feel a sense of belonging, which is really hard. But then the other thing you said, we were just talking with Claire Headley on the last episode, and we were talking about Jane Doe 1 and her decision to pursue legal action against Danny and the impact to her child. And it was interesting because you behave differently when you're a parent and now you have to protect your young. It's like you were willing to put yourself through all these trials and tribulation, but when your children started suffering, it's a different story. That mama lion comes out in you, which is funny because that wasn't modeled to you because your mother was not mm. that mama lion for you, or nor was mine, Victoria's or Miriam. So you had to develop that on your own naturally, organically. Yeah. Definitely going through a process of cognitive dissonance and trying to figure out like why am I putting my kids through the very thing that I despised about my own childhood and even to this day like our adults now to hear them say something about crying themselves asleep at the ranch because they hadn't seen me in a month is still absolutely breaks my heart and I think the difference between me and my mother is that telling her that would not break her heart yeah she's still eating the lies and is still yeah brainwashed within that yeah that's just human emotional reaction h&r yeah dramatizing being someone counter to the intention of clearing the planet and even a three-year-old could be told stop crying for your mother she's doing an important job knock off the ci yeah yeah Yeah. i definitely regret not doing it sooner than i did but i'm very glad that i did i'm pretty sure you did it exactly when you could i think that's true of all of us Yeah, whether we wanted to leave before or we thought we could or we were planning on it. I think it happens when it's possible. Yeah, I understand that regret. I left my mother behind when I finally left. And I've had so much regret over the years because it ended her really mentally. And I just keep wondering, I took her with me. Would she have been okay? But that's ridiculous. And I had to get out and save myself. But I understand where you're coming from. But I think you probably got out the moment that you were capable of getting out. What you were saying about bringing your children in it's not as though when you left that you had a whole bunch of support or even a bunch of information this is coming into the beginning of the internet age yeah some of the factors for me going back in with my kids was that viewpoint that Scientology viewpoint of this outside world is corrupt full of drugs and danger and so if you have that sort of brainwashing already that mindset already yeah you're gonna have your kids in public school and just think oh, they were right. Look at all these horrible things. My children are in danger. Let's put them in a place where they have no education. Yeah, completely bubbled and sheltered. Yeah, you're exactly right, Miriam, about the internet, because I did forget about that bit that in 99, around 98, 99, when we got our first computer, that was a huge factor in breaking that trance was getting onto Operation Plan Bake and being able to talk to other people and realizing that I wasn't just this evil person and having bad thoughts that it just all came together. But I think that the internet was a tipping point for me. I recently was just going through my Facebook messages a few days ago and I first came across Tori Chrisman. 
I think I Googled Scientology like a, a decade ago or so. And that was the first person I reached out to. But I, in the messages, it was so interesting. Like just going back and seeing my mindset then 10 years ago and how I was still speaking was just wild to me. I remember my mind just being blown. OT8s and OT7s and what's really being fed to people. It's peeling the onion. And my mind was just blown. Talking to Tori and realizing all of these things like my entire life was a lie. And if it was not for the internet and Operation Clambake and the other message boards, I don't know if I would have gotten out of it. Yeah, the being able to connect with people then and now has been huge. They've been trying to prevent it for so long. And it is yeah. the one thing that's going to bring them down. No wonder they were so scared. All of us kids running around. Yeah. But anyone that had grown up in the Cadena Org who then went into Sea Org and then left the Sea Org, they would call them up. Hey, what are you doing? Are you trying to get back online? Are you in good standing? They are still monitoring Facebook accounts or Instagram, and they are messaging people. If you joined the Sea Org and you had a laptop, they removed the modem from it. Like you could not right. have internet access. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't know how they could possibly control it now with smartphones. And now that we're comparing notes and we're all realizing, I think that was the other point I was getting to was I thought it was just happening to me. I thought maybe I was just applying the tech wrong or I messed up. I did something. And now we're comparing notes. And it's almost every ex-Scientologist second gen that I meet. We have the almost same stories. Yeah covered up assault and abuse. These things are systemic and they're written into this code on purpose. Right. Yep. I do hope, Danny, that we can have you back on and actually interview you. We can do it justice. There's so many layers. It's all relevant. It's same shit, different day, different child, different name, different face, same predator. And I'm so hopeful that we keep getting to compare and contrast and connect all these dots. It's really powerful for us and for people out there that haven't connected those dots yet. Oh, yeah. Sure. So in our last episode, we began to take a look at the testimony provided by Jane Doe 2 in the trial of Danny Masterson, where he has been charged by the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office for the forcible rape of three women. Jane Doe 2 became involved in Scientology while she was at high school. She had been experiencing anxiety, and after seeing an advertisement for Prozac, she asked her mother if she could get help with the use of medication. Her mother, looking for an alternative, reached out to a family member, and from there, Jane Doe, too, started receiving auditing in the field, which is to say that she started doing Scientology processes guided by someone in their home. After some time, she then went on to attend the Celebrity Center as she began her career as an actress. Today, we continue to learn more about Jane Doe 2's experiences from her testimony as we read from the courtroom notes published by Tony Ortega at the Underground Bunker. This makes me mad because I did the same thing when I was a kid. I was like, oh, I need psychiatric help. I probably need to see a psychologist. And then I was whizzed away to an auditor. <laughs> like, how different our lives would have looked. Yeah. In the Scientology mindset, psychiatry is the worst thing that can happen to you so they're saving you i was just curious yeah. danny in the public school system was that a concern for you oh yeah i was terrified of even just a school counselor talking to my children because that was going to be how the door would be opened i was convinced that a school counselor could get the government to order to put my children on ritalin 
that's what I thought could happen. The choice of how the child would be helped, for example, that it would be enforced. There's no choice. That they were going to view me not putting my children on Ritalin as child abuse in some way, and I could possibly even lose my children if I refused to drug them. You just completely shook a memory out of my brain because wow. that's what happened. So when I was in high school, a private school, not Scientology related, but I was a field PC at the time. And I had seen the school counselor and my auditor told me that I would be put on Ritalin. That was like the number one fear was that Ritalin or Adderall were going to be pushed on a child. We definitely can't give them any kind of exemption for the history that they've had. Was there systematic drugging of children? Yes, I yeah. think that went too far. Yeah. That was a real fear for parents. That drove people into Scientology. We see it right here in this case. Yeah, there's always nuance. There's always going to be gray areas. But that's where critical thinking comes into play. And Scientologists do not have critical thinking. They're not supposed to. Absolutely. The fear was about lack of choice. And then the further you get into Scientology, they just do it slowly, though. Slowly. And the thing that Elrond Hubbard said often, just below a person's level of consciousness. Yeah, it's insidious and it's drawn out and it's a process. And yeah, it's it can trick you into thinking that you're self-determined and that what's true for you is true for you. And right. by saying those things over and over again, that they'll actually be true when they're never true. But. I have two things I want to add to One, three members of my family suffer from mental health issues after leaving Scientology, and one had mental health issues prior to my mom. And it is experimental. It's trial and error. There is no clear-cut solution for anybody. Everybody's chemistry is different. Everyone responds differently to different things, and influences in their life change their chemistry. So if you have a bipolar disorder, you've got these manias, you've got this kind of rollercoastering chemical cocktail going on before any drugs are introduced. And so they're trying to figure things out. But it's been my a million percent experience. They are trying to help you. They're not trying to sell you anything. They don't always do it right. There are side effects. There are downsides. But overall, they have helped three members of my family for sure. And it's not that there's not any suffering. There's definitely ups and downs. But these Folks, for the majority, very much have dedicated their lives to trying to help people not end up in psychiatric wards, not end up in criminal institutions and forensic units, not end up homeless. And they really try to keep families together. So it's not perfect. But Scientology was selling you a solution that was a bunch of mm -hmm. bullshit. If they had just been honest and said, oh, this is self-help and some things work and some things don't and use what works for you and don't use the other stuff. But they had to become so rigid as if it was this a million percent solution if you were doing it right and you weren't out ethics. And that's the trick of it is then you start going into yourself trying to find where you're wrong, mm -hmm. what's wrong with you. That is so destructive. It ruins your relationship with yourself and your trust of yourself. How would that not drive someone over the edge, whether they go into mental health spiral? That's part of the abusive tactic. It's gaslighting. You're breaking the person down so that you are their only salvation because you go back to what's familiar. That's what's mm -hmm. familiar. They're going to help you through that because you're at a breaking point. Also, just add and attest to that psychology and psychiatry is not the issue because it took me a long time to accept help. But I also have very positive experiences 
being hospitalized, but with psychologists as well. And they were not pushing drugs on me. I was on medication, but that saved my life. And it took me a long time to finally accept that medication is not the devil. And it's not going to land me into a life term of hospitalization. Psychology is there for a reason. And mental health is something that you have to maintain and get help for. It's not a hundred percent solution. They're not promising you. I'm going to fix you if you're dedicated enough. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, too, is they told me that right from the get go. I had a very wonderful psychiatrist that helped me. And she said, look, oftentimes, if not all of the times, it is a cocktail and it's trial and error. You're going to find what works for you. If something is not sitting well with you, come back to me. We're going to work it out. They wanted to help me. They did not want to see me fail. They didn't want to see me in a hole, like you said, or homeless or something. They, They wanted to help me and took a long time to come out and trust them. There's limitations. And then the other difference is that you have an industry that's very regulated. So individuals have licenses. Those licenses can be taken away from them. It's a medical practice. So you have laws that govern it. In psychology, there is none of that. They can do as much as they want to or as little as they want to. Under religious protection. Yeah. In fact, if you got some bad auditing or if some horrific result came from some, like you went type three, psychotic. If you had a psychotic break while you were in Scientology, it's still your fault. You still have to figure out how you pulled that in. How did you make this happen? Yeah, I was going to mention that. It's called the modern science of mental health, but (laughs) you don't want anyone who actually needs mental health help from the beginning. I've seen some pretty horrible things and their only solution is to lock that person in a room. It's a huge joke that they call themselves the science of mental health. It is a joke. It sets you up for not actually reaching out for real health. It's also the context of the 1950s because there were some oh, yeah. horrific practices happening in the yeah. 1950s, like gay people That's true. being institutionalized. You could get your wife institutionalized pretty easily if you didn't like her anymore. For mania, for her yeah. menstruation. And yeah, yeah. that's and true. The 1950s mentality is it's pretty bananas that somebody who could be like, 25 years old in 1999 has attitudes of somebody in the 1950s, like yeah. victim blaming for sexual assault, or just all sorts of things. Or even as a 12 year old, I was like, wait a minute, what did you just say? That's a really good point. Yeah, because these are very outdated ideas, yeah. like victim blaming. That's they are frozen yeah. in time. Or They're frozen yeah. in time for their policies. That your husband or your boyfriend can't rape you. Yeah, that's a great point. That is like a hundred year old idea. But what would you expect when people are getting their entire world paradigm books that were written in the 50s? Yeah, they can't. You're right. We're recognizing people's rights more and more as we've progressed. But then you don't see that in Scientology. It's stalled at the moment he put that ink on the paper and it will not change. There's supposed to be a system of government that protects people's human rights. But there's this bubble where the government does not have any intervention and that bubble is religion if scientology is harming you the solution is to give you more scientology whereas if you were outside of that you could say oh i'm just going to change up my counselor you know what i mean oh we're going to try a different kind of medication or i'm going to try yoga there's options but in scientology you're not allowed to do other practices you're squirreling you're doing something wrong and they've yeah. tricked you into the only reason Scientology doesn't work is out ethics or misapplication. So it's your fault or it's your auditor's fault. And then two, 
that if you step away, it's a blow and you have overts or withholds. Anytime you leave, anytime you don't come back to course, anytime you want to get a divorce, anytime you don't want to be in the Sea Org, anytime you don't want to be online, you have sins, you have crimes, undisclosed mm -hmm. crimes. So you can't step away and go, oh, I'm going to try a different counselor. I don't really feel like this vibe is working. Let's say your therapist gives you lithium and lithium gives you these side effects and they yank you off that crap and they try something else. Guess what? If you're going through your grade two and you go, this is not working for me, I don't feel very good. You don't get to go, I think I'll skip this crap. So it's yeah, completely inflexible. I think Scientology has changed, but the ways that they've made their changes, their tweaks have not been evolution. It's been dialing in protections of their organization CYA. and their gross income. Those are the changes they've made. Like they got rid of kids because of the burden on them, not because they fucked kids up. They can't admit to that. They can only say children were a burden or not coercing abortions yeah. anymore. The only reason that stopped was because of media attention. Totally. And the RPF discovered out PR, yeah. out PR. So their shifts are not to evolve. Their shifts are for PR purposes to protect their gross income, to protect their image. Okay. It is not to actually improve and help their members and make improvements for their members. In fact, if they discover that they've screwed something up in their punctuation in books, they make you buy another set because those ones are bad and that's why you didn't get the gains. Danny, you remember that phone call? Oh, yeah. That is why you left. That is why you didn't get the gains because the books had the semicolons in them. And so we've handled that. We've handled the semicolons in the books. It's just insanity. I think on that phone call that you're referring to is, I think I asked that person, like, don't you think when I did the concourse in the 1970s when LRH was alive, that would have been a more pure version than whatever you're putting out now? They can't admit to that. Sandra posted it on her YouTube channel and tagged us as children of oh, yeah. Scientology, but it was a second generation get together that we had in a loft in San Francisco that Tristan Silverman hosted. And it was the first time that several of us had ever gotten together. And it was a little uncomfy and a little wonderful all together. It was great. But yeah, she got a phone call from some kind of a recovery call-in center person. They had started oh. calling me, I guess, the week before. I, I felt like the call started right after you and I talked and I said I was coming. And that's when I started getting the call. I didn't answer the other times. And then they called again while we were all together. So I was like, should I answer? Put it on speaker? Yeah. It was, was awesome. So I, we will link to that. It was hilarious and also super creepy stocky because she hung up on them and they kept calling her back. And it wasn't until I mentioned Leah Remini's aftermath that he was like, oh, okay, I'm out. And that day, Jamie DeWolf came. LRH's great grandson, Bornstein, streamed in with us. And we got to go around and do introductions. And she gave us a beautiful pep talk. It was really a lovely day. That's what happens every single time we have a second generation get together. It ends up being dusk till dawn and lots of stories and lots of just eye-opening nerves and some tears. And it's just Finding really... People we knew in common and... Like all sorts of stuff connecting all these dots i just wanted to say one more thing you guys were talking about schools and psychologists and stuff and my sister and i were out of the Org at this time my sister had some red flags in school and so got called in by a counselor and had an interview and then they called me in my mother freaked the heck out we had been interviewed by psychs like she went into the school and raised holy hell it just flipped her out that they were going to try and put us on Ritalin and all these things. And really the thing that had triggered 
was that my sister was suffering from childhood depression and had no parental supervision. We were being left every day to ourselves. And I think she had mentioned that she had no one to help her with homework and that my mom didn't get home until after we were in bed every day and that we had to get ourselves to school, which we had been doing our whole childhood since my mother joined Scientology. So it's just interesting that we hit their radar because we had red flags of neglect. But my mom's knee-jerk reaction was the Scientology one, which was Sykes, Ritalin, oh my God, you betrayed my children's rights by speaking to them when they were just trying to help us. Some story of early test subject for what was called the sweat program and taking massive doses of niacin as an eight-year-old and alarming the school officials. Oh no. I bet you we could share our horrorful, uh, or horrible. Horrible. Yeah, word. It is horrible. horrible. It was a horrible <laughs> yeah. story. So we did ours when we were 13 and 14, and I think they had just rolled yeah. them out that flag. I think I did mine with Jillian Swartz, if that's the same guy. I don't know if yes. any other Jillian Swartz, but I'm pretty sure it's the same one. I bet it is. Probably. Yeah. Yeah, niacin. When I think about it, mm. when I smell it, I've taken it a few times, and that prickling and the flush and everything, it's a little restrictive. It is. I don't really love it. And sometimes I go, Oh, I can handle this. It's okay. I'm not back in the pure if I'm not stuck in that disgusting sweat box. Speaking of the PRF, there's a course that is directly above the purification roadmap called the TRs and Objectives. This is a course where it's a co-audit, which means that two students will train to then audit each other. The reason I'm mentioning it is because Danny Masterson, according to Internet some say that he completed grade three, some say that he completed grade four, but either way, unanimously, he would have completed the TRs and objectives. In the testimony of Jane Doe too, she mentions a number of times that he's very commanding. He is enforcing through these commands. And I really felt that some of the phrases that were used in the testimony even sounded similar to the phrases used in the commands that you're supposed to give in these training drills. We have touched a little bit on training routines, which were the lower yeah. training routines. And now Miriam's talking about the more upper levels. There's this website yeah. called The Truth About Scientology, and we'll link in the description of the episode. But it's basically Scientology service completions by name. So you can Google anyone and then you just basically add Scientology after their name. And it should bring you to the site and you can see the services that were submitted as completions. And there's this person that has been tracking all of this and sharing it as a public resource for many years. Each organization had a magazine, for example, the Advanced Magazine and the Auditor Magazine. Celebrity Center has the Celebrity Magazine and they would write all the names who had completed services. And that's where this information is taken from. It's also secret members who completed those services at that particular organization. I was the auditor magazine editor for ASHO. I'd go to the qualifications division. I'd get the list of completions. And I would then submit that data up lines to, it actually gets done up at inch. At the base by gold, they will do the actual assembly of the magazine. And later, the printing was done internally, but at that particular time, we would outsource a printer. Yeah, so that would be after a certain time period, because that was not true for any of my Sea Org family's experience. Like, none of us are on any of these. What was happening is they were grabbing up those magazines. So if they didn't have 
access to those magazines? Like, if you know, they go back so far. I'm going to say that I have searched for my grandmother before. She's a really distinct name, so I wouldn't be confused with any others. And I've never gotten a result before, but today I got a hit for her clear mm. attestation in auditor number 130. So someone must be getting oh, wow. access to this. Maybe there's data that wasn't available before. Like if that but it does say that's the yeah. only thing she ever did. And she was OT7 and she was a class nine or whatever. So interesting. all of that is missing. But her clear ping is hitting here. So that's interesting. That's really cool. Yeah. And yeah, and it's just going to depend on how far back people can obtain these magazines. I remember reading the OT success stories and just being like, wow, I can't wait to get there. Like this person saved his daughter from being ran over from a bus. Yeah. Advanced just... magazine, which is from AOLA because they do the OT levels, the That's early right. OT levels. Yeah. And I remember getting that magazine every month and being like, oh, what are the OT stories this month? They're so mundane and selfish. Yeah. Oh, she found her keys. She was late to work and she was able to locate her keys in her mind. Yeah. Or something like about money or yeah. more about money. Yeah. Postulated like, a parking spot. But not. This little girl in Oklahoma has been missing for a week and I used my OT abilities to find her so the police could rescue her. The OT abilities were purported to make one be able to do those things. It was the OTs that in Clearwater shifted the hurricane blah, blah, blah away from Clearwater mm. so that it didn't right. hit the building. That's right. I remember that and I was just like, oh my God. It's super bonkers. So when we were little, I want to say I was probably six. We started getting hauled into the yard because we were getting in trouble, left home alone, unsupervised. My mom was on staff. My grandmother was on staff. Like we didn't have any parental supervision. We got molested. We all, all sorts of bad things happened. Kidnapped, like not good stuff. So they started hauling us into the yard and we would have to come in after school and on weekends and they would just give us messed work and we were filing and we were polishing brass at the San Francisco Arc and this is back right. in the early 70s. Anyways, they also assigned us to the Gateway Magazine Project Evolution. They would have us doing all this collating of these magazines, back to these magazines that you're talking about, the one that came from San Francisco Arc. We were helping run the printers and we were running these commercial staplers and I was six and my sister was seven and one night unaccompanied by anyone I stapled through this magazine <laughs> through my hand. So I was now attached to this thick magazine and I started screaming as soon as I got my breath back. And it probably took three minutes for an adult to come from wherever the hell they were and detach me from this automated stapler. Anyway, so that's oh just goodness. my childhood story about one of these magazines. That is yeah. wild. <laughs> we can definitely do some hours on childhood labor and the projects that we did. So I wanted to point to Jane Dochu's testimony where she says, he starts texting her. Jane Dochu describes the text messages. She says, he was very commanding. He said, you're coming over now. Come over now. You're getting in the jacuzzi. You're putting in a bathing suit and you're coming over right now. And I was like, I was a little incredulous. I told him that you could take me on a date. So he continues and he continues. And so she goes, maybe it'll be nice. I can certainly relate to this as a young woman being like oh maybe it'll be maybe it'll be okay she says here i thought it was his way of flirting i wasn't sure when she gets there she says oh, you're gonna give me a tour you're gonna show me around he was like no drink this gives her a glass of wine she says that she has a few sips of the wine that he had given her and they head outside they head towards the jacuzzi and then he says to her take off your clothes and she says i'm not going to do that 
not going in the pool. But she'd already said that. She already said it a number of times. And he said, take off your clothes or I'll take them off for you. And then it really gets into the details of how it then progresses into rape. When they get up to the shower and he says, go inside, go get in the shower. And Ariel Anson is the one that's doing the questioning. And she says, what was his tone of voice? Jane Doe says, directives, commanding. It wasn't warm. It was like up to the shower. Nah. She says, we cannot have sex. She continues to say that. She's constantly trying to put the brakes on things. And he gives her an acknowledgement. So she goes, we cannot have intercourse. We cannot have sex. And he says, okay, get in the shower. It sounds so familiar. So all the tears and objectives. We're supposed to acknowledge their origination, but then return to the command while you're enforcing this control over the person. So tears and objectives. So if you're explaining it to someone that has never been in Scientology, is listening and doesn't know what it is, in this specific example, someone is playing the auditor, the student, and there's the coach, right? So you're trying to get them to do something that you need them to do. So for example, there's a TR where you're with your student and you say, look at that wall. And so you're giving these instructions look at that wall and you acknowledge them. Thank you. Walk over to that wall. And so even let's say they give you something like my tummy hurts. I don't feel well. As an auditor, she would say, I'm sorry. Thank you for telling me. But then you give the command again because you want them to do what you want them to do. Thank you for telling me. I'm sorry. Your stomach hurts. Look at that wall or whatever. This is also one of the First things you do on the bridge, tiers and objectives, you are learning how to control a person, how to get them to do what you want. No matter what the outside influence is, you need to get them to do whatever it is that you want them to do. You're going back to the thing that you want them to do, which is what he's doing. Yeah. He's saying, okay, so get in the shower. Yeah. So that's exactly right. So the earlier TRs focus more on communication. And the cycle of communication as it is portrayed in psychology. Confront. The difference, exactly, confronting, being there, communicating. The difference with the upper end of TRs is that these focus on control and commanding a person. So you have physical control where you physically will be laying hands on the person. You'll be moving them from one wall across the room to the other wall and touch that wall. And if they... Put their hand down, you're going to grab their hand and you're going to, as smoothly as you can, because it's supposed to be, it's a controlled method of control. Smoothness is going to be increased as you go. Okay. And you're going to this grab that person's wild. hand and like, you're going to put it on the wall. Yeah. This is like the first thing you learn. You do the pure and then you do your TRS and objectives. And this is what you learn as a Scientologist to control other people's bodies and to override says, their autonomy. Like, absolutely. Exactly. The first one is TR6, which is called body control. In the first half of the routine, the student steers the coach by silent action. In the second half, they'll use verbal commands, walk over to that wall. Each successful verbal command must be acknowledged. When the person carries it out, they have to say, thank you. And then they have to repeat the command just to get a, a feel for controlling someone else's body. You're just moving that person's body from one location to the other. The other name for this is called 8C, and that's something that people will probably be familiar with because it's used outside. Like, these routines are supposed to be for kind of auditing training, basically, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Prepare you for delivering auditing in a session, in a room, with your pre-clear, 
And if anything goes wrong, to keep the session on track and keep the questions being answered so you're not being distracted. And if the PC pre-clear tries to get up and leave the room, that you manhandle them back into their seat. And it's not because, or it's not described as because you're trying to control them. It's described as you're trying to help them, that if they leave before you achieve the end phenomenon, that is really damaging to them. So that's what you're taught. The differentiation is they do say control, but the, the idea is there's good control and there's bad control. So they want the body control. You're training to be able to control another person's body. This auditor training ends up seeping out like a lot of different training does, whether it's Tim 40 or ethics yeah. presence or whether these things that are in the Sea Org or in your auditor training end up in homes on children. So my childhood was all full of this thing called 8C, which my mother was physically controlling my body and making me do something. So these things are supposed to be for auditing, but they end up just seeping out into the life of Scientologists, which very much includes the child experience. I wasn't trying to become an auditor. My mother wasn't an auditor, but we went through all this stuff and this became our life. So I guess that that was the point I was trying to make. I've been out I would say a decade now, and I feel like I had my child. She's five now. And even now, I still feel myself like, okay, keep your tears in. Why am I doing this? Am I trying to not do that stuff? But it is so ingrained. You don't Mm -hmm. want your child calling you a robot like mine do. No, I know. It's hard. But it's not anyone's fault but the abuser, the Scientology, is ingraining us in this very robotic way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And with the upright knocked yards, this is where it gets much more rough. And it was a fun thing to do because you get to resist the person that you're doing it with and you can resist verbally and physically. The student who is getting trained may use physical contact to enforce a command. There's a lot of grappling and the student is just dragging you around and forcing you and shoving you against the wall and it gets really rough and yeah. For kids that don't mind a bit of rough play, like it's fun. Yeah. I'm just saying. Yeah. Especially if you were doing it with kids and kids, where it gets really funky to me. For as sure. With adults with kids. I've also done It doesn't that. happen. Yeah. Thank you, Monique. No, it does. It, it happens. I've, it always I've happens. I've done it twice. Thank you very much with adults. Yeah. I yeah. can definitely clarify. I'm totally talking about just between kids that yeah when i was doing my training it was a bunch of us kids from the ranch so then the next from there is tr8 and it's called tone 40 on an object the student repeatedly commands an ashtray to stand up and sit down acknowledging each action although the student holds the ashtray throughout the exercise the goal is to cause the ashtray to move purely by tone 40 intention yeah so so let's set the picture here this one is the people. most bonkers right. of all t- of all TR. It's this is my favorite. It felt good to scream, though, in so a room. Good. It felt good to yell. There's a bulletin that goes along with the training routines, which describes, like, what you're doing and what the end product is and what you're trying to achieve. Everyone reading, okay, so you put your intention into the ashtray. I just thought it was strange. When I did it, they had me do it out in the parking lot so it wouldn't disturb oh, God. It results in yelling. But it's not supposed to be yelling. But in my experience, a tone 40 meant screaming at you. It's not supposed mm. to be that. It's supposed to be this positive delivery that you don't have to yell, but you use so much intention that people just obey you. 
But in it my feels- Sea Org experience, it was screaming. Oh, yeah. I do not have the same or a Sea Org experience. I have it mostly just in like public or in working in a wise company because we would have to run TRS and objectives through wise course. <laughs> so it would be the opposite. You were not even supposed to yell. You were just supposed to deliver it. But I guess that's different because on course and in actual usage, oftentimes Tone 40 came across as yelling. Yeah, you're just basically getting the person to do, regardless of outside influences. The training is to improve you to where you can deliver a command so effectively that the person obeys you. And that's the Mm -hmm. purpose of it. Mm -hmm. I'm just reading this note and it says 1040 involves talking in a forceful enough voice so that the target knows you mean business, basically. You just have to be super intense about it. It's intensity. Yeah, yeah that's all it that's is. Good it is intensity and almost threatening, but not too threatening. Yeah. They have a way of always explaining a way that it's necessary. Whatever they did is necessary. Yes. Yeah. That absolutely. was good control. We put in good control on you. Me, as the recipient, I don't think that felt good, but they can say it was good control. They can say that yeah. that was what was necessary to handle me, get me to respond or comply or whatever so in my mind it was not good control but to them it was and so it doesn't allow the question of why should i be controlled in the first place that that i have a right not to be controlled it's about the delivery of it did he do it well did he do it well enough to make the person do the thing did he get a result or did he fail it exactly did he get a result yeah then it's all about the product then it's good yeah. So we had TR8 was tone forth on an object. You literally have a chair in front of you and an ashtray, an actual ashtray, and you're telling the ashtray, stand up. And you move it with your own hands and you say, thank you, and sit down. And you set it down. Thank you. So you're doing this over and over for sometimes hours on end. The next one after that is TR9, tone 40 on a person. The student moves the coach around a room with verbal commands. The coach resists. And the student must use a combination of smooth physical control and unspoken intention to make the coach obey. The routine continues until the student can maintain exact intention despite resistance. You're building robots. And also, too, look at the words they're using. They're saying command. They're saying despite resistance. They're saying obey. I don't even know how a grown adult could read these words, which they read, and think that this is not a violation of someone's personal space or brainwashing. Brainwashing. There is no such thing as personal space. So there's two things. You're going to use commands, right? And then the person will resist. And then you need to overcome that resistance with smooth physical control, with enough intention to make the person obey. And it continues until you can maintain exact intention, as in you can carry out the commands, get the person to carry out the commands despite resistance. For me, this is exactly what Danny Masterson was doing with Jane Doe 2 throughout it. Stay tuned for our next episode as we continue our discussion of the testimony of Jane Doe 2. This has been lots of great information, but a lot of details that could be really hard to digest, especially if you are a survivor of abuse as well. So please remember to check in with yourselves. For more information, support, and advice regarding sexual assault, the largest national helpline in the U.S. is RAIN. 
That's R-A-I-N-N. Their website is www.rainn.org. You can speak with the trained staff member via the online chat or call their free helpline, 800-656-HOPE. That's 800-656-4673. We're just so happy and appreciative of anyone that is listening because this is really meant to be a part of community. And we're here all together, so we're very appreciative as you're a part of our village. So thank you so much. 